Herb Alpert and Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. That is his weekly Monday appearance, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And what follows, as he endeavors to do every week on the program, Dave Cameron endeavors this week to analyze all baseball. Of particular note, the release from his contract of Dave Dombrowski. Uh, it's a bit of a euphemism, perhaps, for firing, uh, but the result is the same. Dave Dombrowski is no longer the GM for the Detroit Tigers after a very successful tenure there. And it's a tenure that follows uh, other successful stays, uh, both with um, the now Miami Marlins and also before that the Montreal Expos. I asked Cameron about Dave Dombrowski specifically, but we also use certain aspects of Dombrowski's career uh, to ask questions about the influence that a general manager might have on his club or the particular skills that a GM um, might or might not possess. For example, as Cameron notes, Dombrowski was quite successful in acquiring players of star quality, whether it was by means of a trade or a free agent signing. These sorts of deals rarely went awry for Dombrowski as a Tigers GM. On the other side of the matter, however, we find that his bullpens uh, over a decade plus were typically of the subpar variety. Again, we examine these questions uh, and relate them not merely to Dabrowski himself, but to other GMs who are active in the game today. Cameron also comments briefly on the uh, Toronto Blue Jays' recent success. They've narrowed the gap considerably in the American League East uh, with the New York Yankees. Finally, one finds that Cameron attempts to lead the conversation awry with this peculiar and unexpected utterance. Let's talk about Blanket. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. I can hear you. Good. I am using a different microphone. I neglected to bring with me to Montreal, Canada, uh, the Yeti Blue, the Blue Yeti microphone that I use. This is a smaller version. This is the Blue Snowflake. Uh, sounds the same to me. Does it? Yeah. Well, we are experimenting with microphones is what's happening. Uh, and the experiment will continue for at least another week and a half, which is also the same amount of time that I'd be spending in Montreal, Canada. Assuming you don't get deported. Mm, from, yeah, I guess back, right. Um, actually, uh, I'm going to make a forecast. Okay. It is not a weather-related forecast. It is a podcast-related forecast. Do you uh, mean a program-related a program, forecast? A program-related forecast, and it is that uh, Jonah Carey will appear on the program this week. Oh, interesting. I'm yeah. actually talking to Jonah as soon as the podcast is over. Oh, is that right? Yeah, he just wants to ask me some stuff. Yeah, well, that's all right. You are uh, you are a noted baseball analyst. I think he wants to ask my advice on blinking. Well, I think you might have something to learn from him there. <laughs> yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, because uh, I'm in the city and I want to ask him about the city. It might be less. It might concern. There might be less of a conversation about baseball and more about Montreal. Yeah, he's going to tell you to get bagels probably. Yeah, uh, that's he's he's uh, welcome to do that. Yeah, he I, likes Montreal bagels. Right, yeah, if you go down to Saint-Viateur, Saint, uh, uh, there, are, there are multiple bagel spots there. Can, can you just say that word again? Viateur. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this should be one of those Edo Saras pronunciation I think that's uh, actually, podcasts. yeah, but I think that's actually how you say it, because it's okay. on account of so it's French. Maybe we should do this reverse, and like Eno has to spell it after you say it. Oh, yeah, I don't think that would happen. 
<laughs> um, there's also uh, – so there is a – I live uh, – or I'm staying here very close to a restaurant called Le Roi de Smoked Meat, which is oh. the king of smoked meat. Oh, I, I bet I know what they sell. Yeah, uh, but I – but it's funny because – so smoked meat is a, is a rather popular uh, comestible in – in this area, uh, but near the the wada smoked meat is le wada de taco. Uh, um, but are they, are they related? No, but Montreal less well known for its tacos. Although they could still be fine tacos, I don't know. I mean, yeah, right. if you if you open up any taco shop in Montreal, you're probably the king of tacos. The king in of tacos yeah. right? like Taco Bell is probably the queen or something. Yeah. Uh, one note before we plunge into it, but this is all, this actually is uh, related to the pastime, is that around the corner from where I'm staying currently, there is a there is a barber shop, uh, uh, occupied exclusively, I think, by Spanish language speakers who would appear to be from Latin America somewhere, and baseball is on. Somehow baseball is on all of the time. Even when there are not baseball games being played, they have baseball games on the, the television in this barbershop. That sounds like a place that you would like to go. Yeah, it does, except – so I'm scared walking around a lot of the time because I don't speak French that well. Um, and I will be even – I think it's like somehow even scarier going into that knowing that they live in a French-speaking place and they mostly just speak Spanish. That seems even – more frightening because I'm like you. We really don't speak the same language here. I would think this would be better for you because they're probably already used to dealing with people who don't speak their language. So mm-hmm. now you're at the same playing field as everyone else who lives in Montreal. Versus when you go anywhere else, they're like, "Look at this doof who doesn't who doesn't know how to communicate." Yeah, but they're all like <laughs> handsome Latin American men who, by definition, have just gotten their hair cut and look really good. And I am, uh, I'm just a honky. I feel, and nothing makes me feel more like a honky than going into that situation. But we'll see. Are you going to disagree with the fact that I'm a honky? No, I think that's an appropriate term for you. Yeah, I think it is too. All right, uh, Dave Cameron, how are you? You uh, you had to you contended with David Temple last week. Uh, contended is probably the right word. Yeah, yeah we we had a conversation. Yeah, I listened to the was, beginning of it. Yeah, and then you were like, "No more of this." Well, I I was I'm trying to take I was trying to take the week off. From all of baseball, that didn't work though. Oh really? Well, it's just you know, it's all. It, I still like the sport. It's actually easier to like the sport when you don't have to tell anyone anything about it. That's probably true. You just consume it. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a is there a time for you when you you uh, just entirely shut down the analytical portion? I mean, I I mean, I understand like you're not entirely a robot, so <laughs> it's not like shutting down or not shutting down. But are there moments when you're when you are not sort of like actively asking yourself how you could better cover the game and do you become a sort of all-out spectator? Well, I will say since having my son, you know, back in uh, the beginning of the year, mm-hmm. uh, I, generally I would say the um, non-analytical, non-work consumption of baseball has ceased to exist. <laughs> like, <laughs> at this point, if I have time to watch baseball, it's part of my job. And if I uh, have... Do not have to be watching baseball for uh, paycheck-related reasons or uh, things related to Pangrass. I'm either probably trying to keep him alive or sleeping. Right. And keeping him alive, we've discussed this before, it's uh, keeping him alive uh, beyond the sort of natural obligations you feel as a parent and as uh, in whose, of course, you relate to this person, this person shares your genetic material. It's also a legal uh, matter, isn't it? 
Uh, right. If I don't keep him alive, then I also go to prison. Mm-hmm. So, you know, double whammy there. Yeah, that's what they call the old double whammy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's yeah. it. It's yeah. uh, it's bad news to, yeah. to kill your child. Yeah, don't it's do just it. Just in general. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Don't kill other people's children, too, right. by don't, the way. Don't kill anyone's child. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's never anyone... There's never really anyone who at the end of his life or her life is like, you know, I just feel like I didn't kill enough people. Well, there's probably a few people who think that. Like maybe someone who got captured, like, uh, you know, like a murderer who was yeah. run down by the police. Maybe he's like, man, if I would have only killed that police guy who caught me, then I would have still been free. Right, so, right. Or maybe you know. Genghis Khan felt that way. Yeah, right. Right. I bet you there are a few people in history who are like, man, I just didn't quite get to my quota of murders. <laughs> yeah. You know who probably didn't feel that way was Stalin. He, really, he, <laughs> he killed really, a lot of people. He did, yeah. He, uh, he made up for uh, everyone else's lack. Right, he did, yeah, yeah. He, he, compens- he was, what was he compensating for? We don't know, but <laughs> he took care of the numbers. Um, how about this blanket question, uh, so that we, so that I don't miss anything on this? Is there anything that over the past week, uh, uh, is there anything that happened over the past week that it, that uh, someone who was not following the game would necessarily need to know? Oh, so this isn't actually a question about blankets? That's no. <laughs> I was thinking you were going to go with the lead in. I'm like, oh, you just sleep all the time now that you have a kid. Let's talk about blankets. Yeah, no, this is not, this has nothing to do with blankets. Yeah, it is funny <laughs> that your mind went there though, because as a, uh, as a non-parent, I spent nearly zero time, especially during the summer, thinking about blankets, but. Uh, yeah, no, blankets are, I like blankets. Um, so things that happened last week, Dave Dombrowski got fired, which I think is uh, unusual, mm-hmm. maybe, or unexpected at least. Um, yeah, how much do we think, because was that the actual language of the... Uh, he was released from his contract, okay. which I think, uh, there's, it's hard to describe that as any other way than being fired. Mm-hmm. Is that how it will be reported when I'm uh, let go from Fangraphs? No, that'll be murdered. <laughs> We're going to add one to David Appleman's kill tally. Kill, yeah, all right. So so Dave Dombrowski was was fired. Uh, yeah, he after, was released from his contract. Right, after uh, quite a long tenure. Yeah, I have to assume one of Four, the longest tenures. years. Yeah. yeah. Where does that rank roughly in the uh, the current tenured GMs, do you know? I think Billy Bean maybe slightly longer. I think Bean took over at Oakland in 97 or 96 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bean, I think, has been there longer. That might have been it. Well, uh, long, enough, long enough for you to like, yeah, that's, yeah, he's definitely one of the top, uh, top most, uh, most long tenured GMs. Yeah. And, you know, I think, uh, successful. I mean, right? You, you don't generally get to run a team for 14 years if you're just losing all the time, right? Like, uh, the fact that he's been there for so long, uh, is, is a product of the fact that they won most of the time he was there. It got up to a rough start in his first few years because that team was bad and he had to tear them down, kind of Astro style. Uh, but once they got good in 2006, they mostly stayed good. Um, and even this year, like, they're not terrible. They're 500 team. They're kind of sort of still hanging around the wild card race, at least as much as uh, a few other teams that consider themselves contenders. Uh, so I think, you know, this wasn't uh, a total flop. They had a disappointing season, but it's not like they're the Phillies or something. Uh, so this wasn't the kind of season that I think you would expect would get a, a tenured GM fired. Uh, there was talk that he was probably going to leave anyway. His contract had expired at the end of the year. So if you're looking at it and saying it's inevitable that he's leaving, uh, perhaps they already knew they were going to make a change. You might as well just give him a head start on interviewing other places and give Al Avila uh, kind of a you know two month uh, kickstart on 
getting his team together, promoting people, getting kind of the the continuation plan in place uh, so that they're not kind of reorganizing right before the offseason starts. I think if you know that Dombrowski's not coming back, this isn't a bad idea. It's just surprising that he was not necessarily consulted in this, given that I think uh, a lot of other teams would love to have Dave Dombrowski running their organizations. Right, yeah. And and uh, I think I remember these those early years you mentioned. I, I think of players like Mike Maroth. Yeah, who was, he was bad. He, well, he... It was bad. He was a so- soft tossing. He was good for them, but. right. Well, that's the thing, and he was he kept getting uh, pushed out there for for a number of starts. It does seem as though he actually had some two win seasons, although that might have been a function of volume, uh, in addition to to actual like uh, per inning talents. He didn't what he didn't walk people. Yeah, he was a strike throwing soft tosser. Right, and that's and that was and that was enough in those early teams to be quite good, actually. I think. Well, relative to Jose Lima, he was pretty good. Right. Yeah. R.I.P. Uh, Jose Lima should be said. Um, the oh yeah. So those were the teams, and he built them up from that. What now? I feel as though for any GM, uh, you have to sort of make an adjustment uh, for the resources available to him. Uh, of course, in recent years, the team has signed, has has made some deals, like with Miguel Cabrera, for example. Uh, my uh, Prince Fielder is no longer there. I think they had him. It was it's a ten-year deal for nine-year deal. Nine-year deal, right? Yeah. Uh, which seems like a lot of money to give to uh, someone like Prince Fielder, and um, because of we don't he doesn't play a position first of all, really, and also because of uh, their big questions are marked about how he's going to age. Uh, but they did that because Mike Illich is uh, rather old, and so they were trying to win. Um, but what were the uh, do, do do we know anything about the early days of Dombrowski's tenure? Like what, or, or I guess just generally what his strengths were as a GM? Well, I think uh, so. Like the, the fielder move is actually interesting because that probably wasn't Dave Dombrowski, right? So it happened like a couple days after Victor Martinez blew out his ACL right before the start of the season, and they found themselves needing or wanting to replace Martinez's bat in the lineup, and Fielder was still sitting on the free agent market, and that was almost certainly an ownership level decision where Mike Illich decided, "Bah, I need a hitter now." Fielder's still out there. I'm pretty good friends with Scott Boris. Let's just get this done. Uh, and I think if you look at kind of Dombrowski's history. He was really good, at least really successful, at making the big transactions. So, like, the Miguel Cabrera trade where you give up Andrew Miller and Cameron Mabin, uh, one of the best trades uh, kind of of that decade where he identified a 25-year-old, you know, future Hall of Famer that was available. Those guys generally aren't available. Gave up two of his best prospects uh, or two of the best prospects in baseball to get him but also signed him to a long-term extension so that they didn't just have him as a you know short-term rental. Uh, and they basically built a you know, wildly successful team around Cabrera. So that was an, an instance where uh, Dombrowski was able to buy low in, on some extent on one of the best players of his generation. Uh, you know, Cabrera was available. 29 other teams could have gone and gotten him. Uh, not necessarily every team had, had Andrew Miller and Cameron Maven to offer, but it was Dombrowski who kind of made that deal happen and reshaped the organization. Uh, and I think when you look at kind of his his big move uh p- p- positives and, and negatives he he almost generally came out on the on the winning side of all of the kind of big trades even like the David Price trade Jeff Sullivan noted that he probably got as much or maybe even more in return uh for half a season as he gave up to get him for a year and a half uh he really specialized in kind of the star player acquisitions and did a really good job of kind of building a core of you know the 5 6 7 
best players on his team. And even when the fielder deal went south, turning that into Ian Kinsler, who's a better player than Prince Fielder, and getting the Rangers to take a lot of the money uh, at the end of that deal. Uh, so I think overall, Dombrowski did a really nice job at the top end of the roster. His weakness, the bullpen. He just, for whatever reason, was terrible at putting together a bullpen. And maybe even the back end of a, a rotation in recent years, uh um, so I think depth is probably the thing that he struggled with. He was a stars and scrubs GM who uh, did a really good job of putting together stars and didn't quite find good enough scrubs. It is interesting because uh, we probably, uh, at the site, I would say that if there is a bias, well, we'll say there's definitely a bias uh, because bias is uh, prevalent everywhere. Uh, in, in the bias probably tends to be in the direction of those uh, organizations and those moves uh, or those organizations uh, known for making those moves that are of the uh, the uh, maybe a smaller variety where they're extracting a lot of value uh, from a move, you know, the sort that the Tampa Bay Rays are always making, right? Where, where they're turning uh, expiring contracts into, uh, in, in in some cases, into top prospects, or in some cases, into a prospect like uh, Steven Souza, for example, who is already uh, what 26 coming into the season, uh, but uh, you know also possessed all of the sort of skills that you would expect um, uh, that you expect a, a solid major leaguer would possess. Whereas when you were d- discussing Dabrowski, he just nailed he nailed the things that you have to nail, especially if you're going to be a GM who is managing a payroll in the top third of the league or whatever. Yeah, I mean, when you're running 150, $175 billion payrolls, it's less important to extract, you know, a 25% return on your investment on a, you know, million dollar investment and more, more valuable to return of, you know, 5% or 10% return on a $100 million investment. And I think that's what Dabrowski was good at is, you know, even with like the Ivan Rodriguez signings and Maglio Ardogia signings, some of these deals that didn't necessarily look that great when he signed them turned out really well. And Dabrowski's track record on these bigger deals was, was really quite good. Uh, and then, you know, he also did make some of these kind of smarter, uh, you know, buy low or stealing good players from other teams types deals. You know, the Doug Fister trade, uh, Carlos Guillen, uh, twice he took good players from the Mariners and gave them nothing in return. You got Johnny Peralta from the Indians when the Indians didn't think he could play shortstop anymore. Uh, basically got him for nothing. They moved him back to shortstop and he became, you know, one of the best shortstops in baseball ever since. So moves like that, I think, show that Dombrowski wasn't just, you know, Miguel Cabrera and David Price and, uh, you know, Victor Martinez. He was, you know, he did a good job in the middle tier of the roster, too. Uh, I think if he could have just gotten over his infatuation with uh, mediocre closers and perhaps, you know, built a better bullpen, uh, they might have a couple of World Series championships in Detroit by now. Yeah, what is it? Uh, so in terms of, of having a high rate of return on the big moves, is that, I mean, I, I would have to assume that luck is part of that, but then is it also just uh, maybe understanding, uh, having a good, better understanding of how aging works, or alternatively, or in addition to that, uh, maybe how um, uh, med- you know medical futures of certain players? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Like, you can't look at, like, every Dabrowski big move and be like, oh, there's this one specific trait that he's looking for. I mean, if you, you could basically identify... Uh, you know, a certain type of player, Miguel Cabrera, Pence Fielder, even if that wasn't necessarily his deal, Victor Martinez, and say, you know, maybe he just doesn't care about defense, and he's just evaluating the bat, and he looks for guys who can really hit the baseball a long way, and so he's building good teams around 
guys who can, you know, hit and he doesn't care so much about, about fielding. But then you look at it on the other hand of things and you say, well, you know, there's a guy who traded for Anthony Ghost, right? Like, uh, and, and Jose Iglesias, I believe. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, you know, it's not that he doesn't care about defense at all at any positions. Uh, and we can't just, you know, lump all of his moves together and be like, this is a guy who clearly prioritizes offense over defense at every, at every case. I think, uh, you know, probably Dombrowski's greatest strength is that he's able to look at a player, uh, for what he is and not what he isn't. And I think, you know, we see some teams who kind of box themselves in and say, this guy doesn't do this thing, so therefore we don't want him because, you know, we don't like this weakness where he doesn't hit left-handed pitching or he doesn't throw hard enough or whatever it is. Uh, where it seems like Dabrowski did a good job of collecting uh, a talented group of players who had their own strengths. So certainly they had their own weaknesses too. He did end up probably uh, going for players who were, uh, you know, kind of pullers. <laughs> he didn't have that many guys who were good at everything across the board. You generally found guys who were excellent at one thing or excellent at two things and then kind of terrible at some other things, but they were valuable uh, overall because they were so good at the one thing they specialized in. But he didn't necessarily get hung up on specializing on just the one skill. It wasn't like every guy he acquired hit home runs or played defense or ran the bases. He just found guys who were really, really good at kind of superlative uh, players at one particular thing, and, and they were able to add value uh, through that one special skill. Yeah, I, I remember you mentioning a player who was sort of uh, pole tendencies or a limited skill. He, I guess I think he, he made something out of Marcus Thames, didn't he? Yeah, uh, which right. is an interesting sort of player. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that, you know, you can look at it certainly and see, you know, J.D. Martinez, another example, right, of like a, a good buy low, uh, you know, getting a really good player out of nothing. J.D. Martinez has basically one skill right now. He hits the ball really, really hard. Uh, and it, everything else kind of works because of that. He doesn't have great play discipline. He's not an elite defender. He doesn't run that well. Not the toolsiest guy in the world. He just, you know, hits the crap out of the baseball, and that adds up to a five-win player. Yeah, it does. It does now, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and I suppose in terms of attempting to assess a, a GM skill, I mean, it's obviously hard to detach his contributions from other members of the front office, uh, but you can create sort of a, what is it, with or without you type of evaluation, right, by seeing how well uh, he's, his other organizations have performed. And I believe Dombrowski was also uh, quite good at uh, making something out of the, the Montreal Expos when he was there. And the Florida Marlins. And so, so you're right, this is yeah. the, the third time that Dombrowski has gone and, and succeeded with an organization, which is why he's going to be in very high demand as a free agent this winter. I will say the with or without you with an executive is a little bit uh, tricky, especially if you're looking at what happens after they leave, because uh, I think like Pat Gillick was notorious for this, right? Like you can make decisions that compromise the future of your team uh, <laughs> in order to help your own record while you're there and then leave before things fall apart. Get I mean, out. Every, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Toronto, Baltimore, Seattle, Gillick did this every place he went, uh, even Philadelphia, <laughs> generally leaving the mess for someone else to clean up. Uh, and winning while he was there by making you know short-term plays that at long-term costs. That's so, also sort of like uh, the uh, the Phil Jackson uh, coaching method, right? Where you just uh, like as soon as Michael Jordan retires, you you leave uh, your coaching yeah, post because I, right. What, I I will only coach teams with amazing players. So you yeah. think I'm an amazing coach because I can't lose because I won't coach teams that don't have amazing players. It's a great strategy in terms yeah, of yeah, if, uh, if it can work for you. Yeah, it can. Yeah. Um, and one last thing with regard to to potentially assessing uh, um, maybe not Dombrowski himself, but I know this is a conversation I've had with Kyla McDaniel, right? Where um, 
if you're attempting to grade the uh, a, a, a team's front office, right, um, and in particular its 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 uh, ability to acquire amateur talent, you know, whether it's by, uh, by means of the draft or by means of uh, international free agency, the best way to do that is not to uh, is not just to gauge how many uh, prospects they have in the minor leagues because we've mentioned this you know some teams of course are frequently uh, prospect buyers at the deadline because they are uh, actual major league sellers uh, and simultaneously you have teams and I think uh, the Tigers uh, would belong to this that use that uh, they use those assets uh, in order to acquire major league talent uh, I think maybe the White Sox have followed this trend too probably a couple other teams yeah, right. I mean, I think in an, in an ideal world, if we were trying to say, like, how much value has this team returned from their farm system, we would look at kind of, uh, you know, chain, transaction chains, right? So, like, you develop, uh, in their case, like a guy like Willie Adamas, right, who uh, was one of the significant pieces they gave up to get David Price. And you'd say, you know, uh, Willie Adamas to the Tigers never played, never even got above a ball. Uh, but, you know, he was whatever, one third or one quarter or whatever fraction you think of the acquisition of David Price for basically a year and change. And then, uh, David Price still had enough remaining value to get them Daniel Norris and, uh, Matt Boyd and, uh, whatever the third pitching prospect in that deal was. Um, so you could basically say, like, you know, maybe we give, uh, Adamus, uh, the, the acquisition of Adamus originally turned into, uh, whatever, one or 1.5 or something, whatever we think that, you know, the fractional percentage of, uh, Price's value was, uh, during his year with Detroit, plus some future value for, or some future percentage of the production they're gonna get from the three pitchers they got in Toronto. And you say, like, man, over the next 10 years, uh, having Adamus and the ability to trade him uh, might end up being worth five or ten more for the Tigers, even though he never got above a ball. And so uh, that would obviously be a very complicated set of transactions. But if we were looking to do like a holistic view of how each organization got value from the talent they signed and the talent they acquired and developed, uh, you'd want to do something like that. So when you trade a prospect away, you're not just counting them as a, as a zero. You're you're including the future value that that player brings back uh, in trade. Do we have a sense that the front offices are performing this sort of arithmetic? Yeah, I would imagine uh, that the the front offices that are the most thorough and really interested in kind of self-reflection and figuring out how well they've done historically are probably doing things like this. I think in my conversations with friends who work in the game, uh, one of the things that they mention is that um, they're generally more interested in predicting the future than they are in evaluating the past. So they'd probably only want to do something like this uh, in a, in an effort to kind of quantify their own uh, current staff members, you wouldn't necessarily say, okay, let's go back and figure out how good, uh, you know, some area scouting guy was if that guy's already left for another organization. Because you don't really care how good a scout he is if he doesn't work for you anymore. Yeah, you don't, you, yeah, well, the future people, uh, you, uh, you gotta be concerned with the future. Right. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think organizations generally care more about what they can predict than evaluating what happened in the past. Right. Okay. Uh, okay, uh, I started off, uh, or at least uh, uh, almost 20 minutes ago now, I asked you uh, what a person uh, would have missed. Uh, oh, the blanket I, question. Yeah, it's a blanket. We're not talking about blankets, though. Mm-hmm. Um, just like when I uh, when I discussed the looming deadline for the for non-waiver trades, uh, that had nothing to do with looming <laughs> oh, <laughs> or, <laughs> or the, man, the manufacturer of uh, any sort of 
uh, textile. <laughs> uh, the, I would be the right guy to ask that, given that I live in North Carolina. And yes, and also your love of blankets simultaneous yeah, to that, right, which exactly. requires we, yeah. We should uh, maybe do a looming blanket podcast. We're not going to do that. We're not <laughs> going to do that. But I am going to ask you a question: Is uh, uh, is there anything else besides the, the Dabrowski firing? Uh, well, I think the Blue Jays have gotten pretty hot. <laughs> yeah, if you hadn't been paying attention uh, when you uh, left, I don't know, a week ago or even yeah. two weeks ago, if someone had checked out, they'd been like, ah, oh, the Blue Jays are fringe wild card contenders. They're hanging out down, you know, trying to chase down the Twins and hanging out with the Orioles. They're basically a 500 team, and then they traded for David Price, and that helps a little bit, but it's only, you know, only so much one pitcher can do over two months of the season. They're probably still headed for a wild card game, and now they've won 11 of 12. They just swept the Yankees in their game half out of the AL East and maybe look like you know, at least co-favorites to win the division uh, and are, you know, very strong playoff contenders at this point. Um, one of the, the big reasons why is uh, obviously Price pitching well, but also uh, a lot of the other guys on that staff, the holdovers, Marco Estrada and R.A. Dickey, have been very good since the All-Star break. Uh, and I think, you know, the, this doesn't necessarily look like a team that's just going to outscore teams, you know, 9-8 to eight anymore. Now this looks like a team that can still score a lot of runs, but their pitching staff is at least okay. Uh, and they look like a team you do not want to play in October. The uh, the Blue Jays, it would appear, currently possess the second best uh, base runs uh, winning percentage, and it's just uh, two percentage points off of the Dodgers. Yeah, and uh, you know that doesn't include the fact that Tulowitzki and Price are on their team now, and and base runs is you know aggregate performance over the entire season to this point. If you were going to do expected base runs going forward and allocate much more playing time to Price and Tulowitzki, you might actually have the Blue Jays as the best team. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, I guess that's that's what they expected would happen, um, or they, uh, well, they were probably hoping would happen. Uh, yeah, I don't think you ever expect to win 11 out of 12. <laughs> right. And, uh, I mean, is that uh, – do you think this is somehow – this is already uh, an improvement in true talent manifesting itself, or is this uh, largely a function of the sort of uh, vagaries of, uh, you know, results, I guess? Yeah, both. I mean, so I will. So the answer is always both, isn't it? What is the distribution? I guess. Uh, So I would say it's probably sixty percent uh, true talent and forty percent luck. Uh, So you know, uh, I think when we saw at the All Star break or whenever they were five hundred. The Blue Jays had, you know, a, a base runs record that suggested they were a much better team than that. We should have expected them to play better. Uh, and then they went and added, you know, two of the best players in baseball. So then you really expect them to play better. Um, but at the same time, I think when you look at, like, their pitching staff is a 2.75 ERA or something since the All-Star break. But their peripherals haven't changed at all. I think uh, first half, second half, they have a 103 exit minus uh, in both of them. They've just, you know, their Babbitts went from 290 to 230. And, uh, you know, therefore they're stranding runners and, and posting a really low ERA. So um, the pitching staff is not amazing, but it's better than it was, and it was probably underrated uh, the first half of the year. Um, I think this was always kind of a more of a mediocre staff than a total disaster, and obviously adding price, uh, you know, helps push them up into probably the average or maybe even slightly above average category. Okay. And you mentioned, uh, you, I think you wrote last week uh, regarding their, I guess, their advantage or their disadvantage, uh, however one chooses to, to think about it. But the point is uh, perhaps an imbalance in a, in a, in a level of talent um, insofar as they have uh, a number of talented right-handed batters uh, joined by Justin Smoke and Ben Revere. Yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be an interesting thing to see what Alex Anthopoulos can do in August to kind of remedy this. And I think realistically, he's even said he's looking for another outfielder, uh, and that outfielder should absolutely hit left-handed. 
Um, I think, you know, one of the nice things about the acquisition of Ben Revere, not that Ben Revere is amazing or anything, is he can play center field, uh, where if the team decides they really want to get three lefties in the lineup, they have the possibility of sticking Revere in center and using Kevin Pillar as a defensive replacement instead of starting him, even though he's a very good defender and adds value, even though he's not much of a hitter. Uh, but if you, especially are you're going up against a, a right-handed pitcher in, the, in October with significant platoon splits, uh, you might want the ability to run out, you know, a third left-hander, uh, you know, even if the guy is maybe a less overall quality player than, than Pilar over a whole season, in that one specific matchup, you might be better off with a worse defender in left field and in center field if you move a rear over, um, but getting another guy in there who can hit right-handed pitching and doesn't just let you know, your sinker, slider, righty, uh, kind of roll through uh, a, a lineup with basically seven good right-handed batters. I think that's going to be one of the interesting things to see is um, how many left-handed bat- pitchers do the Blue Jays actually face in the postseason. I think, you know, if you look at it and say, okay, they faced like 40% left-handed pitching uh, so far this year in the regular season, uh, and then you look at the potential playoff teams in the American League, there's probably only two or three starting pitchers that you think uh, – they might actually face, unless they face the Astros with Dallas Keuchel and Scott Kazmir, and there's no way for them to avoid throwing those guys in the playoffs. But every other team, they have like one, maybe two left-handed pitchers on their entire team, uh, and this is, you know these are the likes of uh, Andrew Miller uh, that they're going to be facing. You're just you, there's no incentive for a a, a team play, facing the Blue Jays in October to throw left-handed pitching against them if they only you know see 20, 25 percent left-handed pitching and they see 75 percent right-handed pitching. Uh, they might not score as many runs in October as they did in the regular season. Although they have, uh, they seem not to have been bad uh, against right-handers. No, right. I mean, so the, the, I think the point that I maybe didn't make as well as I would have liked in that piece is um, it's not that the Blue Jays' offense is going to fall apart in October. But when you look at it and say that you know this is a team as like I think a 113 or 114 WRC plus uh, from their position players this year, which is good. It's you know the best in baseball by a couple of points. Uh, um, a lot of that is from crushing left-handed pitching. And if you say, you know, maybe they're a 105 or 106 team against right-handed pitching, that isn't, you know, the super dominant offense that you'd expect to put up five or six runs against good pitching. It's not that the Blue Jays are going to have a bad offense in October, but they don't have a great pitching staff. Um, and I think if you're looking at it, this isn't saying, okay, it's a, you know, an average or maybe slightly above average pitching staff now with the additions that they made at the trade deadline. You need to have a good offense, or, you know, one of the best offenses in baseball to win in the postseason with that kind of pitching staff. And, um, you know, unless they add another good left-handed batter, they might be susceptible to being, you know, a good offense instead of a great offense. And are, are there any uh, obvious uh, matches for them in terms of acquiring a left-handed bat? Not really. I mean, I think, you know, especially because they're probably not shopping in a high-end territory. I mean, when you're looking at guys who are going to clear waivers in August, you're generally looking at bigger contract guys, right? So um, if you're looking at, you know, like, I don't know, Carlos Gonzalez or something like that, he would help. But you're not going to get Carlos Gonzalez uh, without giving up, you know, real talent and taking on the 30 whatever $6 million he's due the next couple of years, which the Blue Jays probably don't want to do. Um so I think, you know, there's not an obvious fit of like some quality left-handed hitting outfielder who's going to slip through waivers and not cost a lot. Like that generally, you know, that kind of trade you probably needed to make in July. So I think that what they're probably looking at at this point is maybe a lower key acquisition. Um, you know, maybe not Brandon Moss, obviously, but someone like Brandon Moss, who's, you know, uh, not so good that a team like the Phillies or one of the, you know, the bad teams at the bottom of the, is going to really put in a waiver claim on him because they really want him. And also a guy who's probably not going to cost you a ton, 
you know, maybe Alejandro Deaza would be an option oh, uh, for the Red Sox. Yeah. As a, you know, kind of a platoon left-handed hitting outfielder. I think someone like that is probably what they're looking at. What's the status? I see uh, that just today there's a report of uh, Chase Utley having passed through revocable waivers. Yeah. Uh, he, I think he's what? He has a... Is it, uh, he has an option that was a vesting option for this yeah, year, but it, it won't it won't vest. I don't think he's right. So he is he's a two million dollar buyer. So um, it, it, would he require too much in the way of a return? No, I mean you're basically probably just going to do a cash dump at this point. I mean like the Phillies can't really expect to get much for Utley. He's not playing well. He's old. Uh, he's not particularly healthy and probably can't play every day. I mean, at this point, I think the Phillies are probably just saying, you know, if you pick up the rest of his contract this year, which is like three, three or four million bucks the rest of the season, um, you know, we'll just let you have him. And, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if someone claimed, uh, Leon revocable waivers. The Phillies just didn't bother pulling back the claim and just said, fine, we won't even work on a trade. You can just, you can just take him. Um, Utley's contract won't vest till, you know, there's no way he's going to get the 200 whatever plate appearances he needs the rest of the year, uh, in order to, to have his 2016 option picked up so it's just a rental uh but i don't know that Utley really fits all that well for the blue jays i mean devin travis uh you know is expected back at some point and has been a good second baseman uh they could claim him but then if you know if travis comes back it's not clear that Utley's a better player than travis and Utley's not capable of playing the outfield at this point in his career uh so i don't i wouldn't think that that would be a great fit for for the blue jays i could see Utley ending up in new york uh and playing against the blue jays because the yankees still have a significant hole at second base Oh yeah, what did they what have they been doing? Stephen Drew? Because I know Stephen, they had uh, Stephen Drew. They had called up Rob Refsnyder at some at some. Yeah, point. but his defense is still really bad. Is He's he, probably just not a second baseman. Yeah, well, he, of course he played right field in uh, in college, I think, and yeah. moved to second base. After. Right. He he probably needs to play the outfield. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, what are we thinking about Sherman Johnson? He'd be an important player in the postseason. Uh, unlikely, unless we're talking minor minor league postseasons. Minor league postseason, he very well could, yeah, yeah. Huh? Matt Boyd probably not either. Although Matt Boyd does start tonight, does start tonight. Yeah, I don't Detroit think Matt Tigers. Boyd's gonna be pitching in the postseason either. But you know, uh, certainly an interesting interesting arm for the Tigers to have picked up, yeah. and uh, we'll see if this is the latest Sestuli guy to out outperform expectations. I like, his, I like his chances. I like his chances. He had sort of a weird start in his uh, Tigers debut. I think he allowed uh, no runs, maybe one run, uh, but only imposed a two to two to zero strikeout to walk ratio over seven innings. Not ideal. Right. Pitch to contact is what he was doing. Yeah, that's what he was doing. That's not necessarily uh, the skill set he exhibited as a uh, as a minor leaguer. So. Yeah, I think the, it'll be interesting to see because he looks like an extreme fly ball guy, right? And he is, so yeah, that, yeah. that'll be kind of the question: is like with these extreme fly ball guys, if they can. Uh, you know, su- suppress their home run rate enough to be, you know, Chris Young or, uh, you know, Matt Cain is obviously like, the best example of this, uh, in terms of, of outcomes. That Boyd probably won't be that. But, you know, someone who can, you know, run a 7 or 8% homer to fly ball ratio while being an extreme fly ball guy. Marco Estrada, uh, gets a lot of infield flies and has had a nice career kind of with the skill set. Mike Fires? Uh, is Mike Fires part of that club? Fires is part of that club. And right, Boyd, I think, you know, probably throws a little bit harder than those guys now. Uh, but was kind of in that prospect class when he was throwing 88 to 92. It'll be interesting to see uh, if Boyd can kind of limit home runs enough to have that kind of career. Uh, is it who's the hardest throwing uh, member of that group, or is that just kind of a different type of pitcher because they are they actually have the fastball to to work up in the zone uh, in a more traditional way? 
I mean, Justin Verlander was that kind of pitcher who threw 97, so that helped, uh, and he had two good off-speed pitches. Uh, but I think, you know, Verlander was, uh, you know, a, a su- suppressed BABIP, low homer to fly ball ratio guy for his whole career. Uh, he also just struck a lot of guys out, which is why he was awesome. Right, right. Yeah, that's a different thing. A little bit. Um, okay. Hey, I think that uh, you might have fulfilled your obligation, provided uh, I've, uh, I haven't omitted uh, something of note. Uh, no, that's, that sounds like, uh, we've covered all the blankets. Yeah, I covered all the blankets. Alright, uh, well I'm going to, uh, I'm gonna say thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome, Carson yeah. yeah, okay, very good. Uh, that has been, uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor, of course, of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestuli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.